0: Bum ba dum, bum bum ba dum, bum bum ba dum. with the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson. I'm Brad Gullickson. And each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four-color realm. In this episode, we're going to war. Civil war, that is. Oh With no. Sue Storm and Reed Richards, as seen in Marvel's The Fantastic Four, issues 538 to 543, written by J. Michael Straczynski and Dwayne McDuffie, and illustrated by Mike McCone. And we're applying the four tendencies by Gretchen Rubin to their relationship woes.
1: We did it, Lisa. We made it to episode 100.
0: What? It's unbelievable, you guys. I mean,
1: honestly, like, does it feel like we are at 100? Does this feel like episode 100 to you, like, time-wise?
0: I feel like comic book couples counseling was a great idea. We had... Yesterday, yeah, but we've also been doing it our entire marriage.
1: Yeah, okay, <laughs> uh, uh, all right. Yeah, I, I, I think I understand what you mean. I feel something similar. I think a lot of the confusion around my emotions is our numbering system, you know, because. While this is technically episode 100, it's also CBCC session 67. Right. Right in the middle of our Sue and Reed conversation. And when it came to our 50th episode, we we stuck with the session numbering, <laughs> so our fiftieth episode celebration, which was Don and Noren Rad, uh, the kickoff to that conversation, was actually like episode sixty seven, sixty eight. I can't remember exactly, so it feels like we got to this episode one hundred celebration, maybe a little too quickly. Oh, yeah. But I also think, you know, we joke about the legacy numbering of comic book couples counseling and how that is very much the strategy of the big two publishers, Marvel and DC, constantly rebooting, constantly coming back to issue number ones. And, And so, like, it feels like... It feels appropriate. I like it. I like that we're, we're, we can celebrate episode 100 today. And then when we get to CBCC session 100, we can celebrate episode 100 again.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. Like, uh, if I were a questioner, I would say, <laughs> why not just celebrate whenever? Because. Yeah. The episode number is just arbitrary yes. anyway. Now, but you're my, not. But you're
1: not a questioner.
0: <laughs> I'm not. I'm an obliger. So, whenever you'd like to celebrate, I'm down for it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to celebrate whenever I want to because I'm a rebel.
0: Well, um, what my question is is are we going to make a bigger deal out of episode 100 today? Or episode number sixty-nine in like two episodes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh yeah, we'll, we'll we'll also celebrate episode sixty-nine. Sixty-nine, uh, dudes. I now have to think about what episode, like, who's our couple? Because that because
0: that's supposed to be our one pod stand.
1: Of Loki and Loki. Uh,
0: Loki and himself, which I think is appropriate because he is kind of a snake eating his own tail. He's like a <laughs> one-man 69. Loki
1: episode has to be episode 69. <laughs> yes. Excellent. But let's be honest, the real reason to celebrate is to have an excuse to commission some really rad art. Yes. And like we did for episode 50, session 50, when we went to Karen Charm and asked them to do an homage to Mike Alred Silver Surfer number one. We went to Josh Cornelin and asked for a Jack Kirby homage to issue one of the Fantastic Four. And that's what you see as the cover art to this episode. And how incredible lucky are we.
0: They did a bang-up job. Yes. I am so proud to have my visage yes. on this poster. Yes.
1: Yeah. It like it, it has become a new. Particular type of thrill to see you and me inserted into iconic works, iconic images like Fantastic Four, number one, like Silver Surfer, number one. It's addictive, and I wish we had all the money in the (laughs) world so we could do it for every single episode.
0: What's weird is before we started commissioning these pieces, we didn't have any pictures. We don't have like photographic (laughs) evidence of our existence in this apartment.
1: I literally just turned over my shoulder. and was like, no, we got that one photo of us at 4th of July, but actually we've taken that down. So. <laughs> we, we
0: have. And um, so now we went from, look at these modest people. They don't feel this compulsion to put themselves up on their own wall oh, no. to like, look at these people. They keep... Sp- You know, commissioning amazing (laughs) artists just to draw pictures of themselves. Yeah,
1: I feel like (laughs) the Queen, you know, when the Queen gets a portrait hung up in Buckingham Palace. These are our portraits. (laughs) I love it. And I also feel like a little sneaky, like I'm taking advantage of Josh and Karen because they are not incredibly expensive. Their commissions at are this time. affordable at this time. So if you're listening to this and you would like your own commissions from Josh and Karen, reach out to them through their Twitter feeds, links in the show notes to this episode
0: and uh go get your own portraits. Get in there now because yes. uh they're extremely talented and they're going places. Yeah, I like to me he
1: both Josh and Karen, like, why are they not doing Marvel comics today? Like, this is a style that is sorely missing within mm. both of the big two publishers. And I think they would do well to snatch up these talents immediately.
0: But in the meantime, we're going to make Hey while the sun shines. Yeah. And we're going to commission pieces from them while we can still afford it.
1: While we can afford it. Yes, correct. And you should do.
0: Even if our... Numbering system is a little wonky, and celebrating our 100th episode slash 67th episode is arbitrary. I still (laughs) feel like this episode marks a time of tremendous growth Mm. for CBCC and the CBCC community and family. Um, I don't know if you guys have been keeping your eyeballs on our website, but it is growing Exponentially, as is the content we're providing to our Patreon subscribers by means of super rad interviews.
1: Yeah, so in addition to our regular Creator Corner episodes, which you can see here, listen here, in the main feed, we're also running transcript interviews on the website with some super cool people like Tom Pear talking about Penultimate Man, uh, Howard Wong and Josh Stafford talking about Damned Cursed Children, Erica Schultz talking about The Deadliest Bouquet, and then those audios will also be in our Patreon feeds. Uh, And we're going to, every now and again, share a little snippet From those conversations here on the main episodes in these sessions. So at the very end of this episode, after the credit music, you will hear Howard Wong and Josh Stafford talking about their comic, Damned Cursed Children from Source Point Press.
0: The audio to all of those interviews are going to be available at our dollar level.
1: Yeah, one buck.
0: It's just a little jingle jangle. Just one dollar. Just
1: one dollar. What's that from, Lisa?
0: Just one dollar. I have no idea. Bottle water, just oh. one dollar. <laughs> wow, very uh, yeah, local reference. The
1: very local Baltimore Comic Con reference. The guy who used to sing uh, outside the convention center while he was selling bottled water. Oh, do just you remember, one dollar. Do
0: you remember being outside of convention centers?
1: Lisa, it's going to happen real soon. Awesome Con is going to be in August. We're going to be there. Yes. We're, we want to see our DMV listeners. We want to hand you some stickers. Mm-hmm. We might even have stickers of Josh's art. At the convention. Ooh. You're going to want one of those. Find us at AwesomeCon. Yeah.
0: Okay, we better move on, because if we toot our own horns any longer, we will go blind. (laughs) Oh no. Besides, Reed and Sue are sitting in the waiting room, and we have to prep ourselves to handle their scandal during the Civil War.
1: Yeah, Fantastic Four Civil War. Most comic book fans are probably somewhat familiar with Marvel's Civil War event. It was written by Mark Miller, who's been in the headlines recently with his Jupiter's Legacy Netflix series, not to mention other various movie adaptations like Kick-Ass and Kingsman. And it was illustrated. Illustrated by the ultra fabulous go-to event guy, Steve McNiven. Uh, This event comic was published in 2005 through 2006. The storyline kicked off when the young hero group and reality stars known as the New Warriors stormed a supervillain compound in Stanford, Connecticut. The bad guy Nitro erupted his powers at full force and a good chunk of the town was decimated on live TV. Hundreds were killed and superheroes as a whole were publicly blamed. This led to the formation of the Superhuman Registration Act, where all Marvel costume types had to register with the government. Tony Stark, the Iron Man, spearheaded this movement while Steve Rogers, Captain America, rose against it after he was asked to round up some of his fellow capes. A great big royal rumble ensued. Spider-Man outed himself as Peter Parker and sided with Iron Man until he didn't. The giant man-like hero Goliath was murdered by a clone of Thor, built in a lab by Reed Richards. Johnny Storm got jumped outside a nightclub and fell into a coma for a good portion of it. Oh, And uh, Reed also built a prison for the heroes and villains inside the negative zone. Yikes. Sue can't stand the position her husband takes, and the Fantastic Four are torn apart. More on that in our general discussion. But Sue even goes as far to reach out to the Atlantean stud who, you know, Gets her a little hot under the collar, mm-hmm. Namor the Submariner, but the king wants nothing to do with this American conflict. By the end of the event, Steve Rogers can't stand the fighting anymore, he tosses down the shield and surrenders, Tony Stark wins, and while it doesn't happen in the main event, but in Captain America's solo series, the Red Skull assassinates Steve Rogers using a brainwashed Sharon Carter, and in this murderous wake, Bucky Barnes, the former Winter Soldier, becomes the new Captain America. If all you've seen is the MCU movie, you do get an idea of the general conflict brewing between Iron Man and Captain America, but you really have no idea how much bleaker and darker the comic book series truly is. The events of Miller and McNiven's Civil War are way more upsetting. It's the kind of event that when you get done, you ask yourself, how are any of these people going to be cool with each other after such absurd and catastrophic infighting? I mean, we got a lot to talk about here, Lisa. Reed and Sue, how can there be hope for them after Civil War? Reed is borderline monstrous in this series. Maybe not even borderline.
0: I mean, this is tough because Reed does some terrible things and Sue is willing to break up their marriage because of it. But then we know from the 40th wedding anniversary issue that they do get back together Which kind of makes Sue a monster as well, maybe, because is what he is what he did forgivable?
1: Well, uh, the, the tricky thing here is the resolution that we get at the end of Fantastic Four Civil War is sort of a like let's wait and see. Mm-hmm. And then that waiting and see is are, are all those Dwayne McDuffie comics that come afterwards that we have not read and we're not really going to investigate. And and so all we have to go on is that after Civil War, Reed and Sue do get back together. And in covering the 40th wedding anniversary last week, I I think that does help me understand the ongoing conversation that occurs and that must occur in any marriage. And because these are superhero characters, their conflicts are more extreme than anything we ever face as Brad and Lisa. And so I kind of just go like, well, Civil War is sort of this metaphor for like the ultimate fight, right? (laughs) But like if... If if I did what Reed did.
0: Yeah, yeah. Sending our <laughs> colleagues into the negative zone <laughs> is kind of a deal breaker for I, me. <laughs>
1: yeah. So I, I don't know. We're, we're, I, let, let's, let's put a pause on, on that conversation for now. Let's talk about Gretchen Rubin and the four tendencies and how we're going to use her as our love expert to help this conversation about the darkest time in Reed and Sue's marriage.
0: Oh, man. This session is going to be a doozy. (laughs) In Civil War, we see Reed and Sue on two very different sides of an enormous issue. And not only can they not persuade each other to their side, they can't even relate enough to each other's sides to keep their relationship together. Before we tackle this particular arc in their relationship, we really need to consider why being on opposite sides of the Registration Act upsets the very bedrock of their relationship. We're using Gretchen Rubin's revolutionary concept and book, The Four Tendencies, full title, (laughs) The Indispensable Personality Profiles That Reveal How to Make Your Life Better, parentheses, and other people's lives better, too. Long title. Oh, man. Published in 2017 by Penguin Random House. The Four Tendencies Profile Individuals by the Way They Respond to Expectations, inner, expectations we place on ourselves, and outer, the expectations that others place on us. This places people into four categories, upholders, who respond well to inner and outer expectations, obligers, who respond well to outer expectations but poorly to inner expectations, questioners, who respond well to inner expectations but poorly to outer expectations, and rebels who respond poorly to outer and inner expectations. That's me. Yeah, that's you. Over our last two sessions with Sue and Reed, we determined their tendencies, and Sue is an obliger and Reed is an upholder, and got to know some of the idiosyncrasies of each of their tendencies. If this is your first episode with us, and you find yourself totally lost with all this tendency talk, allow me to encourage you to listen to our last two episodes But if you follow like two thirds to one half of what I'm saying, you should be fine starting right where you are.
1: And listeners, there's a link in the show notes. Click on it. Click
0: that link. I think first we need to remember that no one is fully just one tendency. We all use the tools of each of the tendencies to help meet our expectations, but our tendency represents the thing that we're most comfortable doing or what we may unthinkingly do when we're prioritizing what is expected of us. That's why Gretchen calls them the four tendencies and not the four all the times. Each tendency also has common ground with two other tendencies and is the opposite of one. Upholders meet inner expectations like a questioner, and outer expectations like an obliger, but don't have anything in common with rebels who don't meet any expectations. Obligers meet outer expectations like upholders, fail to meet inner expectations like rebels but are unlike questioners who fail to meet outer expectations but meet inner expectations. This is not to say that opposites can't be friends or teammates, but it may mean that they have conflicts when it comes to meeting expectations. Think about Johnny Storm the Obliger and Ben Grimm the Questioner in Fantastic 4 number 3. Sparks oh, flu, if you know what I mean. So good.
1: And constantly. Constantly they fly. Yes. I think that's the core to their appeal as yeah. a couple themselves.
0: Absolutely. There's also a lot of variation within a tendency when it comes to prioritization of expectations. Let's talk upholders, for example. They meet outer expectations and inner expectations. But let's say they have an inner expectation that conflicts with an outer expectation. Like this Random example right off the dome. (laughs) Inner expectation. I am going to launch the rocket I built when the conditions are clear in order to beat the Russians. Uh uh Outer expectation. I am going to wait for the go-ahead from NASA to launch the rocket I built for them. In this example, Reed chooses to prioritize the inner expectation over the outer expectation. Gretchen refers to prioritizing one half of an inner outer tendency over the other as tipping. Like an upholder that tips towards inner expectations over outer expectations could be considered an upholder questioner, while an upholder that prioritizes outer expectations would be an upholder obliger. So if an upholder is tipping most often to their inner questioner side, How can we decipher if they are truly an upholder-questioner and not a questioner-upholder? I think this is really important, and it took a little bit of reading and consideration of the four tendencies to get to the bottom of this conundrum, and I believe the answer can be found in chapter 12, the second-to-last chapter, entitled, Speaking Effectively to Each Tendency. In this chapter, Gretchen focuses mainly on how to set an expectation in a way that reaches each of the tendencies— but she lists right next to each other what each tendency values and how that is factored into their decision-making. Upholders value self-command and performance. Questioners value justification and purpose. Obligers value teamwork and duty. Rebels value freedom and self-identity. So upholder questioners may do something in a questioner fashion, but it will be in service to their upholder values. So a questioner and an upholder may be reading the same book on astrophysics, but the questioner will be doing it to give justification and purpose to their expectation, while an upholder will be doing it to improve their self-command and performance over an expectation. You would think that if an obliger is trying to persuade an upholder that using their shared desire to meet outer expectations would be the way that they could appeal to them. But that isn't the case because while the action is the same, the value is different. You can't say to an upholder who has decided to meet an inner expectation over an outer by saying, hey, what about the team? Can't you see that you're being selfish? Because an obliger may call—what an obliger may call selfishness, an upholder would call self-command. Upholders want to be holding the joystick when it comes to driving the fantastic car of decision making. (laughs) And maybe that's why Reed may be left playing with his own joystick all alone (laughs) if he doesn't begin to see where Sue is coming from. Yeah, 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 yeah. The fantastic car is actually the perfect metaphor for Reed's upholderness. Like, look, the perfect car. We can all drive together when it's called for, but I can also drive myself when it suits me better.
1: (laughs) Oh man, that's so true. If
0: it seems like I'm bragging on Reed, the upholder, that's because I am. Like (laughs) Sue, I'm an obliger, so I have no problem seeing things from Sue's point of view. Even though I may have some upholder behaviors rattling around in me, my values are more centered in togetherness and working in harmony with others, and I rarely, if ever, think that ends justify bad means. Hmm. Brad is a rebel, so yeah. he relates even less to Reed. Yeah. Do you feel like the rebel values freedom over self-identity represents you and where uh, you side with the Civil War? Y-
1: yes, mm-hmm. yes. And <laughs> since we've labeled uh, Dr. Doom a rebel, as I've been reading more and more Fantastic Four comics this month, I keep going like, I like this Doom guy. <laughs> <laughs> he speaks to me.
0: Well, when I think freedom and self-identity, I think Dr. Doom. That's right. (laughs) So really, I'm focusing more on Reed's upholderness here in the waiting room so that Brad and I can better see where he's coming from during our session with the Storm Richards. If you're listening and you're more of a questioner-upholder type, hopefully over the course of the conversation, you'll begin to understand why, for Sue, Reed's choices and how he goes about making them are worth dissolving a marriage for. Once we have Reed and Sue on the couch, I'd like to focus on what other tendencies obliger Sue and upholder Reed are tipping toward, Mm. especially considering how estranged they become over the course of the book. I'd also like to think about how Reed and Sue could better communicate with consideration to their differing values rather than differing actions.
1: Yeah, but before we can do that, Lisa, we gotta get into some words of affirmation.
0: Affirmations!
1: So, you know, the last couple of weeks we've had some new patrons. We've been having so much fun over in the Patreon feed, over in our Slack channel. Lots of conversation, lots of new comic book day celebrations. Yes. But becoming a patron isn't the only way you can support comic book couples counseling. You can head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a loving five star review like the one we got this week. These reviews really do help us reach more listeners. They're incredibly effective. So if you like what we do, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review like Burl2 did this week. Lisa, can you read what Burl2 said about us?
0: This podcast is so much fun to listen to. The hosts are so funny and incredibly natural on the air. You feel like you know them, it's conversational without being informal. I am only a casual comic reader, but that doesn't matter with these two. You don't have to be up to speed on their topics, so enjoy. Yeah,
1: thank, thank you. you, Burl. Too. And it's it's nice to hear that you don't have to have read necessarily the comics that we're discussing. That we do, you know, we do spend a lot of time bringing context to the books, but also our love experts. I mean, we spend a lot of time, guys. Like you should. You should really hang out in the love nest the week before these episodes drop because it is constantly just click clacking away on our laptops.
0: So if you didn't realize that this was our 100th episode and a celebration episode and you forgot to get us something, don't worry about it. You can just go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review, and say something nice. It's free, and it helps us feel great, and it helps us reach new listeners. Since
1: we've been doing this podcast, I have made sure to leave five-star reviews to all the podcasts that I listen to, uh-huh. and I am constantly reaching out to others making comic book podcasts and pop culture podcasts and leaving them five-star reviews. It makes me feel great.
0: because, And, and, and you can feel great, too.
1: Yeah, you can feel great, too. Uh, words of affirmation, they are... Our love language.
0: And they fill our tank, so thank you, thank you in advance.
1: So now it's time for the comic book.
0: Woo! Dun dun dun, dun dun dun! Dun 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 dun! What is it good for?
1: Absolutely nothing, Lisa.
0: I know, right? <laughs> <laughs>
1: So stupid, but I love it. Thank you for going on that journey with me, Lisa, as we're charging into battle this week with the FF Civil War tie-in issues that ran inside Fantastic Four, numbers 538 through 543, written by J. Michael Straczynski and Dwayne McDuffie, penciled by Mike McCone, inked by Andy Lanning, Chris Justice, and Cam Smith, colored by Paul Mounts, lettered by Russ Wooten, and featuring covers by Adi Granov of Iron Man extremist fame. Art, Addy Granoff, is that correct? Granoff? Yeah, I Granoff? think so.
0: I think that's fine. I think it's extremis.
1: Extremis? Yeah. I, I mean, because the word's extreme.
0: Yeah, but I mean, it's how Guy Pierce says it. No, he says extremis.
1: No, I'm a Mountain Dew kid, Lisa. I'm going to go with extremis.
0: I guess I can't argue with that.
1: So here is the plot synopsis for Fantastic Four Civil War, courtesy of Goodreads. One member of the Fantastic Four lies hospitalized, a casualty of the civil war that has fragmented the superhuman community. Another member is secretly helping the opposition, Who will toe the line? Who will join the resistance? And who will leave the battlefield altogether? Ooh, nice and succinct. And the book actually answers all of those questions. But I'm curious about a question I asked you at the end of our last Fantastic Four episode when we announced that it was going to be Fantastic Four Civil War. And I asked you, who was going to fall on what side, and you rightfully predicted that Reed was gonna be with Iron Man and Sue was gonna be with Captain America, but we didn't really talk about what sides Johnny and the thing were gonna fall on. So were there any surprises regarding the Superhuman Registration Act and how it all played out amongst this family dynamic?
0: I wouldn't say there were surprises necessarily. I wasn't exactly sure what Ben Grimm, the questioner, would do. But reading through this book, it makes a ton of sense that-
1: He removes himself?
0: Yeah, that he would go into a kind of questioner paralysis state where he goes like, well, there's no amount of research that's going to give me the right answer. So I'd rather leave and abandon the situation than- Take a side that could potentially be wrong.
1: Mm. Yeah, and 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 I got to say, hey, like, even though I ultimately enjoyed this storyline as a whole, especially approaching it from Reed and Sue's perspective. I was deeply disappointed that Johnny is taken out of the game immediately Mm -hmm. and then comes back later in the book.
0: With no explanation, no dramatic, I'm awakening from my coma. Yeah, and
1: that's like, that's part of the frustrations with a tie in event like this because. The big story is happening over with Mark Miller and Steve McNiven and J. Michael Straczynski and Dwayne McDuffie can only do so much within the Fantastic Four title itself. That's a real bummer. Mm. But I think it still works, at least from a character point of view. So while we're robbed of some plot beats, we're missing some puzzle pieces in this arc. Uh, the the character stuff is still pretty easy to follow and tracks with the characters as we know them before this storyline starts.
0: And I also think that Ben's story of like the American thing in Paris yeah. added a little bit of much needed levity to this story arc.
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, like the, the issue feels a little weird when we get to it. I don't uh-huh. want to jump ahead because it's so removed from everything else going on in the arc. And I kind of like if we're going to have a spin-off story let's have four issues of the thing in paris
0: i love like having just read issues one through six for our first episode mm. and then reading the thing in paris because it feels like an old fantastic four comic yeah it feels like that first mole man appearance it, to it, me
1: it, yeah it really does it feels old school Which in turn stresses the anxiety of what's actually happening in the United States with the Superhuman Registration Act, right? So when we get back to it, you feel feel the gut punch that everyone is experiencing with this storyline.
0: This is our third episode with the Fantastic Four, just focusing on Reed and Sue. And I feel like Ben and Johnny have really been there to give... Reed and Sue some outside much needed perspective on their relationship Mm -hmm. and when you take these characters out of commission like that's what sends their relationship into this like wild spiral and it most often pairs off with Ben Grimm talking to Sue and Johnny talking to Reed Mm -hmm. and if you think about it like Reed's two wings are the obliger which brings him closer to to his wife and the questioner which brings him further away from his wife. Mm. So when Sue talks to Ben, he can kind of analyze like what is Reed thinking when he's thinking with the questioner side of his tendency and then Johnny does the same thing for Reed when Reed is starting to get to analytical, he draws him back in to the obliger side of his brain because Johnny too is an obliger. So
1: when we're in the middle of this book, when there is no Johnny and there is no thing and it's just Reed and Sue crank to 11 yeah. on their sides of the issues, the heat, the anger between those two is so uncomfortable but so compelling right like the, this is this is this this is the stuff that i was really anticipating and getting excited about when we were going to talk about civil war and the comic delivers on that confrontation even if it hurts and even if the resolution doesn't necessarily deliver on the confrontation mm, does that make sense yeah yeah so okay let, let's Let's really dive in. I think we've given like our broad thoughts on it and it's time now to put Sue and Reed on the couch and go into session.
0: So let's start with issue 538. Johnny is in a coma and the doctor says to Reed Richards like, even though he's in a coma, he's still present. We want to encourage him to wake up. So we want to keep this environment like very low stress. Low chaos. And
1: Sue wants to go get his iPod so she can play him his favorite music.
0: Yeah, because the doctor said like that could be very calming for him. Uh Ben Graham offers to take the first shift of sitting with Johnny, and he goes, like, hey Reed, when are you gonna take uh, your shift? And Reed kind of goes like uh-uh. And Sue We're is busy. like busy. is <laughs> like, well, he has Better things to do. (laughs) And we, we get to experience how the tension is just like bubbling beneath the surface. And they start arguing right away. And the way Sue sums up their conflict is he is willing to take our friends, people who have fought beside us, and throw them into prison because. His upholder nature will not allow him to break the rules. Yeah, he's
1: just following orders. Which
0: to his, like, to her credit is what he's been saying. He's been saying, it is my job as a hero for the United States to uphold the law.
1: And he continues to say that for a very long time.
0: And we find out that that is not in fact the whole truth. So uh, stay tuned. But we definitely get a taste of... Sue's obliger values, right? Obliger values is all about teamwork and duty and togetherness. Yeah, our
1: friends, they're our friends. We should be loyal to our friends.
0: Exactly. And while um, upholding the law is an upholder action, it is not in fact the upholder value because the upholder value is self-command and performance. So like him going like, I've got to uphold the law. I'm upholding the law. He is defying his value of self-command and is perhaps locked into a state of upholder tightening where when they are stressed, they cling on to their routine. So if she wanted to kind of loosen him up and mm. get him thinking about the situation a different way, she shouldn't keep going like these are my values, right this those should these, my values should also be your values. but instead say, aren't you free to make your own decisions? Like, don't you have your own mind appealing more to his upholder value? Mm.
1: I, like, I I keep going back to our first episode about those first six issues of the Fantastic Four and going like, I don't know, Lisa, if they're going to remain upholders and obligers, but with every new episode, with every new arc, I'm like, nope, they're definitely upholders and obligers. You've convinced me, Lisa.
0: This is actually the arc that has challenged my diagnosis Mm. the most not for Sue so much but for Reed because we're going to see him retreating into a lot of questioner behaviors and we see him do things that maybe align more with questioner values but I do have my reasons why I think he is still an upholder and I will unfold those as our conversation progresses.
1: So after this moment where they finally leave Johnny's room and and the thing is left with Johnny and there's actually a very lovely page of the thing communicating with Johnny and trying to keep him company but like running out of things to do he's like singing into the the streets of New York outside his window he's you know twiddling his thumbs and it only an hour passes and that baffles him before Sue returns and we get one of those moments these counseling moments between Ben and Sue and he helps her out in in this moment, and she may not really help him out. With Reed back at the Baxter building, Sue takes this as an opportunity to explore this superhuman registration issue with Ben, and Ben doesn't want to hear it. He wants to focus on Johnny right now. Johnny needs us. We can press pause on this argument.
0: Ben has been at the brunt of a lot of manipulation both from Reed and Sue trying to get the heart and soul of the Fantastic Four on their side. Mm. And the thing with questioners is they don't like to be questioned. And
1: they they certainly don't want to be caught in a tug of war.
0: Absolutely not. So what they th- when they think they are persuading him, they are in actuality pushing him away. And Sue is making what, to me, sounds like a lot of great arguments. Like, (laughs) it's just because you disagree with what the country is doing, that doesn't mean that you don't love America. It doesn't mean that you're not patriotic. But the thing that he questions is, like, she goes, like, you have to make a decision now. Mm -hmm. Right? The issue is now. And questioners don't like to do things now. They like to wait until they have all the information they like to kick the can down the road and that's what he tells her like do we really need to solve the registration act now In Johnny's hospital room when he's lying there needing us. Obviously, there are other pressing things happening in this family. And
1: I think there's a lot to admire from that point of view. As a rebel, I tend to answer immediately uh, and usually in rejection of whatever is being said to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is true. And I'm trying to work on it. I'm trying to adopt what the thing is doing here. Because I do think like... It's always better to get a little distance between you and the problem of the moment. You got to you got to sit on things sometimes. Now, not you can't sit on things all the time, but, in you know, the thing Sue and Reed all have an evening where they could just chillax mm-hmm. and be there for Johnny. I think the thing is right here. I think they need to be here in this hospital for Johnny taking care of the kid.
0: That's also something I would love to learn as an obliger. Cause you know, as an obliger, I'm always going like, well, I have to do this thing for this other person. And just taking to taking a moment to go like, well, is that really true? Does that person need me as bad as I feel? Like, is this in actuality an emergency or am I just having an emotion like it is an emergency?
1: And this hospital conversation feels incredibly relevant to my own family dynamics, you know, outside of you, Lisa, mm-hmm. you know, my wife, but I think about my parents, I think about my in-laws and, you know, politics right now, you know, the, these topics are so important in our heads, right? Um, and, and they can take over. And I struggle sometimes with going like, okay, well, is this a do or die Political value that I have? Is this what I want to sever a familial relationship over? Or can we still find a way to connect as family and not necessarily see eye to eye? on that value. And then that you start to go like, well, isn't that a privilege that you have the opportunity not to see eye to eye? And so, yes, that's a privilege. And so maybe, maybe we should reject that
0: privilege. But don't like ah. when you go down this road, uh, the questioner road, can you just see yourself moving to Paris? uh, Yes,
1: yes, yes, yes. yes. I mean, we've, we've had that conversation in the last four years about like, is this the country we still want to be in? Does
0: Canada even want us anymore? And the answer is, no. Well,
1: Canada does not <laughs> want us. No. No, they don't.
0: And in the next issue, something happens that makes Ben go like, I definitely can't take sides now because both sides are, in one way or another- corrupt and wrong.
1: While I am uh, sad that there's not a lot of Reed and sue in this issue, I do love how J. Michael Straczynski uses the mythology around Yancey Street mm-hmm. to explore civil war, to explore the point of view of the public, right? And in particular with the character of C, who uh, very cleverly finds the location of Captain America and the New Avengers. I guess he's in league with, or he gets some info from the Mad Tinker Uh, and the Puppet Master, and that's how they all end up getting together. Uh, But, uh, you know, getting the Yancey Street gang to collaborate with the new Avengers is really ingenious, and you get to, like, see quite a bit. So by the end of this issue, when he is killed in the conflict between Captain America and Iron Man, I mean, that's major. And that's one of those events that, in real life, I just can't see it being brushed over or resolved as quickly as it does in comic book land. Right. Like it's such a tragedy and you totally understand why it sends Ben to Paris.
0: And he tells us why he's going to Paris because the issue ends with him holding C in his arms, pietà like and going like, uh, I'm so disgusted. I'm leaving.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the reader is disgusted. You know, that that. Man C is dead because of Captain America and Iron Man. Right. Civil War really is one of those events where at some point, you have to push major aspects of it out of your headcanon, if you're going to continue reading Fantastic Four and Avengers comic books.
0: Yeah, it's super dark, and the idea that anybody can move on to this is, like, unbelievable.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, okay, let's stay focused.
0: Well, issue 540 starts in an insane way. <laughs>
1: yes! I mean, we have uh, Reed inserting Wildstreak into the negative zone, and she's frozen in this tube. And just Today, Michael Straczynski puts in this sly reference to a Tom Lehrer song, which I mean, I guess he was what? He was like a parodist. Yeah,
0: he was a a comedy guy who was like known to be sciencey and mathy. And so one of the guards is
1: singing his Werner Von Braun song and it's, you know, I'm not going to do the accent, but once the
2: rockets are up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department, says Werner Von Braun.
1: Once the rockets go up, who cares where they go down? That's not my department, says Werner Von Braun. Mm -hmm. And uh, for those that don't know who Werner Von Braun is, he's the Nazi scientist who we recruited in America thanks to Operation Paperclip, the same operation that allowed Hydra to go into the MCU. Armin Zola was part of Operation Paperclip. And Werner Von Braun went from developing V2 rockets for the Nazis to creating the rockets that launched the first satellite into space the United States. And yeah, Reed Richards is being compared to this Nazi scientist. Not
0: only is he being compared, he doesn't necessarily disagree with the comparison. Yeah. And
1: he he, like, so the song starts off from one of the guards and it's Reed who carries the tune. Mm -hmm. And that feels very damning, self-aware, but damning.
0: Right. Not to mention that this is happening in the Baxter building yep. and Franklin and Val are sleeping in their bedrooms. Yep,
1: yep, yep. Uh, Reed's got to be pretty confident about what he's doing with the negative zone.
0: No, I th- I think he's actively having doubts because we get in uh, his narration, like this ongoing theme of like, I start having a feeling And then I go back to the numbers and I look at the numbers and we even get this quote of like, maybe that's what I've always done, retreated into this place of science and numbers and facts.
1: So I don't know about you, Lisa, but while I was reading this issue, I was enjoying and appreciating the captions uh, giving us a window inside Reed's head and it just... Uh, highlighted, underscored how infuriating it is when he opens his mouth and he can't translate his thoughts into dialogue.
0: I I think that he's not translating his thoughts into dialogue because he's keeping secrets. Mm. And so um, whenever he says like, I'm just upholding the law, that's not the entire truth. Right. But let's go back to this ongoing narrative of like, I return to the numbers. This feels like, a questioner behavior in action. Like, I am gathering data because that's going to be the justification, which is the questioner kind of, is the questioner value. But that's not the narrative that he is sharing with others. Mm-hmm. Where I go, like, well, if you are hiding the questioner like, because everybody defies their values. Nobody is a perfect person all of the time.
1: Especially okay. when your wife is like, you're a rebel, Brad. And I'm like, I'll show you. <laughs> oh no, I'm a rebel.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I think that in this case, the value that he's trying to present is the value he actually has. Mm. And I think that this questioner tipping has to do with like, if I tip to my more obliger side of, I want to be a good partner to my wife. I want to be a good teammate to my fantastic four. He can't do what he needs to do. So like his tipping towards the questioner side is a way of estranging himself from his wife because his wife can change his mind.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and you, you definitely perceive that, uh, towards the end of this episode, like he is trying to he, he is forcing Sue to go.
0: Well, what are Sue's wings? Sue's wings are upholder towards her husband and rebel away from her husband. So as they're estranging from each other, their tendencies are tipping mm. towards the tendencies that are away from their spouse, which is how they become so estranged. Because as an upholder, rebel is the opposite. So he can't relate to her rebellious side. And for her as an obliger, questioner is her opposite. So she can't relate to his questioner side.
1: So by the midpoint of this issue, they have firmly entrenched themselves on opposite sides and are now acting against each other. Sue aids Wildstreak in her escape from the Baxter building. And Reed knows this. And now it's time to talk about it. Reed witnesses Wildstreak's escape and sees her come out of invisibility. And he can sense that his wife is right over his shoulder and he calls her out. He says like, I know you're there. We have to talk.
0: Up until this point, Sue rebelling against the government and against him has just been in discussion. And now by helping Wildstreak escape, She's now breaking the law, and he cannot abide by that. But, of course, he is sending their peers into the negative zone, and she can't abide by that either. And she is the one to first make the comparison of, like, if you're just doing this, taking orders and doing this, you are being a Nazi. Uh, do you not realize this?
1: She's the first one to verbalize it, but Jay Michael Straczynski makes the first comment That's about right. it, and it's already in his head, right? So he's singing the Werner von Braun song, and when she calls him a Nazi, he goes, oh, I know, <laughs> but he can't say it.
0: No, he says, like, we can change the laws, but we have to do it through the proper channels, and until that point, we have to... Upholds the laws, right? Wh- which is where she goes, like, okay, that's just some straight up Nazi talk.
1: And because he's already acknowledged this through the Werner von Braun song, you, the reader, are positioned to be on Sue's side. I mean, I certainly am.
0: He fully knows what he's doing, but that doesn't mean necessarily he wants to be called out on it. And so his response to that is, "We're done," implying. We're done with this conversation. But then she goes like, damn, Skippy, we're done. We're done with this relationship.
1: And I am kind of baffled that he's baffled by this decision, you know, and she reiterates it by saying, you know, we fought so many people. We've tangled with Dr. Doom and Kang the Conqueror uh, and the Puppet Master. But what's going to separate us is you. And he was not prepared to hear this. And again, he reiterates like, this is the law. This is why I'm doing it. But also this is why I've been doing it is because I wanted to protect you. And when he says that to her, he like uses his Mr. Fantastic abilities to like stretch his hand and close the distance between the two. And she she, she doesn't take his hand. He takes her wrist. And when he takes her wrist, Then she goes, you wanted to protect me? Chirac, splash page. And the invisible woman has erected this shield around herself, this tube that penetrates the roof and the floor and just puts this giant hole through the Baxter building, and it's this awesome power moment. And it's it's the type of moment where you just cheer for the invisible woman. Like, Sue Storm is such a titan on the team, and so many writers don't really display her gifts like they should. And this moment to, like, signal the final split between Reed and Sue, it's so powerful. But yeah, if we if we got to choose friends, uh, I'm on Team Sue after this.
0: Absolutely. and And she states out loud, like, do I look like I need protecting? And in this moment, she is calling him out on all of this BS he has been spilling. Like, she knows that it's not just because he's upholding the law, because he's broken the law before. And she's like going like, don't use me and our relationship to justify your terrible actions.
1: We're the Fantastic Four because you broke the law in Fantastic Four issue one when we stole that spaceship.
0: Exactly. Now here is why Reed Richards was shocked that she was going to end their relationship over this. He as is an upholder. And so he believes in like autonomy and self-empowerment. So he goes like, well, my decisions are my own and um, my decisions reflect only on me, where she is an obliger and she's all about teamwork and togetherness and being a unit. So when he is doing evil acts, it reflects poorly on her because she's part of the team so where he goes like we can take two sides out of an enormous issue but still be a marriage that's just not the case for an obliger it's just asking too much and it just sends her into full obliger rebellion
1: Off to see Namor. That's right. (laughs) Ben Grimm comes back to the Baxter building, sees that uh, Sue is gone. Of course, Reed has thrown himself into his work because what else is he going to do? Ben's looking for a confrontation, but Reed's not going to give it to him. And now it's time for the thing to get out of here.
0: And just go to Paris.
1: And the final scene of this issue, even though it doesn't have the thing or Sue or Johnny, and it's just Reed... Tony Stark and Peter Parker. It is such a brutal moment. It's a turning point for both Reed and Peter Parker because Peter Parker is going to take a road trip into the negative zone. And what he sees within is what finally breaks him from Tony Stark's point of view and sends him running to Captain America.
0: When Peter returns, he looks at Reed Richards and goes like, how can you do something like this? And Reed tells him this story about, well, <laughs> I have an uncle and Uncle Ted and he was quirky and fun and artistic. And then like McCarthy came after him um, and he ended up getting slapped with the book of the law. And from that moment on, I learned that you can't fight the law. And um, And we find out later that Sue was in the room and heard this story about Uncle Ted as well. And I think it's just like, the most gross, transparent thing to do to Peter Parker, because he's going like, You have an uncle, I have an uncle. And, and my uncle taught me something. The uncle's story is
1: crazy. Like, right? if 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 Reed thinks anyone is going to be persuaded by this tale of his uncle Ted you know, uh, rebelling against the government and going like, oh, well, Uncle Ted shouldn't have rebelled against McCarthy. He's nuts. This is when Reed is the dumbest smart guy in the room.
0: Well, like he's dumb because he thinks it's going to fool or convince or anybody with
1: Peter Parker and his Uncle Ben story. Like, you don't know the Uncle Ben story. Well, and Reed Peter Richards. Parker,
0: Peter Parker is also an obliger. Mm. And so him going like, and from that point on, I learned, you know, there's, you know, no point of trying to be yourself or it, helping someone else express their true self. It's best to just... To Conform. Look, at, look at the facts, you know? Like, it's just, it's not going to Work persuade anybody. And it's not even true. Like... Everybody is listening to Reed going like, who is this guy? It's not what he thinks.
1: Well, his best bud, Ben Grimm, the thing, is done listening. And the next issue is a solo adventure for Ben as he goes to Paris and meets up with, uh, forgive my pronunciation, Lisa, but Le Hero de Paris. I forgive you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, and, and and like you said earlier on in this conversation, this is a very fun issue. It is reminiscent of the Silver Age. These uh, French heroes, Le, Her- Le Hero de Paris... Uh-huh. Laero?
0: Yeah, I don't think they have the H sound. Okay,
1: Laero de Paris. They are uh, stand-ins for the Justice League of America. So there is a Batman type character. There's a Catwoman character, a Flash, a Green Lantern, uh, a Question, Doctor Fate situation. So it's it is it's it's fun to hang out in this issue. At the same time, like I said, I wish it was its own mini-series mm-hmm. because it does feel like this long gap to get back to what I'm really interested in, which is the conversation, the confrontation between Sue and Reed. And I can imagine as a reader uh, of this era, when this issue dropped, you're like, OK, 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 can Can we get back to what's important here?
0: Mm -hmm. Though he does get to have a little fling. What happens in Paris stays in Paris. That's right. So maybe we'll come back to this issue when we do um, uh, the
1: the many romances of Ben Grimm,
0: yeah. Oh,
1: if we're gonna do Ben Grimm, we gotta talk Ben Grimm and Alicia Masters. I
0: think he does make a reference to Alicia he, Masters. He does. He does say like, I've got a girl back home.
1: Jumping over to five forty-two, this is also when Dwayne McDuffie takes over the writing duties, and Johnny Storm is suddenly back. We don't get the moment of Storm coming out of his coma here in the Fantastic Four solo title, and that does feel like a missed opportunity. It
0: seems like the most depressing wake from a coma scene ever, because he's gonna, because generally you come out of the coma, your eyes, you see the eyes <laughs> part, and you're surrounded by the people you love. But in his case, the people he loves are, like, so self-absorbed. Yeah. But,
1: and don't you think, like, we we deserve to see that scene in Fantastic Four and not in some other title? Yeah. It feels weird. And that's, again, that's just the frustration of event comics and tie-ins and blah, 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 blah. But Johnny Storm's awake. He needs a latte. He goes to his local Starbucks. Who's there? Also, but Reed Richards wearing a very handsome hat, Lisa. He
0: loves that hat.
1: He loves that hat. He's not hiding. He's just proud of that hat.
0: (laughs) That's a questioner moment. Don't question me. Don't question my hat. (laughs) But Johnny has also noticed that Reed is acting out of character. And he just wants to have one of their signature obliger, Mm -hmm. upholder, uh, heart to hearts. Reed is defensive from the outset. Because he says, like, you know, like, if I find out that you're helping Sue, uh, I'm going to do something. And Johnny's, like, sick Thor on me. And he's, like, oops, Ooh. that was just an accident. I didn't mean to. Good
1: job, Johnny.
0: Yeah, yeah. And But then Johnny just calls him out and goes, like, what is up with you? And he gives the same old song and dance, it's the law, I'm abiding the law like I've always done. And Johnny's like, since when? You don't even obey the law of physics. We stole a spaceship. We've overthrown governments and defied gods. Now, all of the sudden, we turn on our friends because of a bad law. Note the language, we, our friends. That He's making the same old obliger mm. plea that Sue has been making. But Reed gives a defense we haven't heard him make before. He says, like, it's not a bad law. And he gives a little taste of the Tony Stark defense, which is, like, the unpowered are afraid of us, and then what stems from that fear is just so much worse. And, like, Johnny is like, so the ends justify the means? And Reed replies to a mathematical certainty, mm. though someone could check my work. Mm. And then he's like, okay, I've I've got stuff to do, and they leave.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah, and I think this is where uh, Dwayne McDuffie, like following in Straczynski's uh, path that he has created with the mad thinker, like to bring the mad thinker in as the person to check his math is really brilliant. And I should have seen that coming at the start, uh, but when it when it finally arrives here in this issue of like, you know, golf clap, bravo,
0: mm-hmm. I think also Johnny, his argument his argument with Johnny like appealed to his emotions, which then again, tips him back into questioner mode because he wants to get away from his obliger side.
1: This storyline doesn't really have a lot of great, like super powered moments for Mr. Fantastic.
0: Yeah, he doesn't get to be a tire.
1: No, he does not. But he does get to infiltrate the Thinker's lair by going through his uh, faucet.
0: Yeah, how did you feel about that, Brad? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Like, I want to know what is his perception, like, inside that rubber brain of his, you know, like, can he see as he's wiggling through all those pipes?
0: I wonder if it's, like, his eyes become, like primordial fish eyes where it's just like he can just kind of see light and dark because his mm. eyeballs are all stretched oh, out and flattened.
1: Yeah. Or like, like if he's stretching his eyes to be more of his, like can he stretch his eyes to be more of his body? And so like his whole body is one big eye.
0: Ooh. Okay. <laughs> now you've succeeded in grossing <laughs> me
1: out. <laughs> yes. Uh, but boy, what a surprise for the tinker who, the thing, the tinker, the thinker who responds in the only logical way when a man comes out of your pipe, you shoot that dude. But unfortunately, this guy is rubbery and so he can just catch those bullets with his body again.
0: (laughs) But if you can't shoot him, I guess you join him and Reed convinces him to come back to the Baxter building and then on his way to take the Thinker to his secret whiteboard room, he stops by to say hello to his children, because you know what? He has two kids, you guys. And they're just, like, dropping
1: blocks through the hole that mommy created. Where
0: is Sue? Like, she's like, you're a Nazi. Watch the kids. I'm out. (laughs)
1: She's with Namor.
0: (laughs) I guess everyone's acting a little fishy. Oh, no. And, like, I'm
1: sure Dragon Man or Herbie or someone is looking after these kids. You
0: know what? Like, she's the invisible woman, Mm. and we do I do know that later she's she's been known to just hang out and catch her husband saying terrible stuff. I mean, that's what I would do with Invisibility Powers. And odds are she's watching the kids this entire time. I hope so. So Reed escorts the thinker to his office, which is in fact a secret whiteboard room where he has like equations all over the walls. He looks like a serial killer. Absolutely. And he kind of is. And the thinker... (laughs) uh, uh, immediately starts buttering his bread like, oh, this is the most sexy equation (laughs) I've ever seen. You must have the biggest brain to make such a beautiful equation. And Reed tells him the story about how when he was 12 years old, he was reading Asimov's Foundation. And he read about the idea of psychohistory in which there are equations that can predict the future. So he's like, well, if it can happen in fiction. It can happen in reality. And he has come up with this mathematical equation modeling human trends. And so apparently he's been plugging the Human Registration Act into this equation and the lack thereof. And apparently with no superhuman registration act, there is this enormous Catastrophe and all billions of people die. And not
1: only that, you know, we we now see that Sue is listening in on this, and she appears, and you know, she's like, "We're gonna beat the odds. We can beat your math." And Reed has Reed has played it out. He's like, "No, you're we literally not. can't." It shows here that Tony Stark's side is going to win. It's in the numbers.
0: I think the most telling exchange is when the Thinker goes like. You, like, you've come up with this equation, and the answer to being the savior of humanity is you specifically becoming more evil. Mm. And he's like, and the thinker's like, it's, you're just choosing the lesser of two evils. And Reed Richards corrects him and goes like, I'm choosing the lesser of 31 Evils. But when Sue appears, she doesn't call him out for coming up with this equation or hanging out with the thinker. She calls him out for lying to her and keeping this information from her. And what I love that she brings back is like, this isn't about the law. Or your uncle, which is where we find out. She was also (laughs) hanging out when he was talking to Peter. And he goes on to say, like, I was protecting you. And she goes on to go, like, I'm your wife. Johnny and Ben are your friends. And uh, they had no idea this equation existed, even though Tony Stark did. He was using it to play the stock market. So why did Reed Richards keep this equation a secret.
1: Shame, and he knows that she's right?
0: If Reed Richards was a true questioner, he would have told them that this equation exists and that that this equation justifies and supports his actions. But he is, in Mm. fact, an upholder, and by having this equation, controlling his actions, he's saying, I am not self-empowered. I don't don't have autonomy. I'm being controlled from the outside, which would be against the upholder principle. Mm,
1: nice, Lisa.
0: Why, thank you. And thank Reed for betraying his family and therefore proving that I am very clever. <laughs>
1: so that is the end of the fantastic four civil war storyline for the most part you have to go into the mark miller and steve mcniven comic to see the actual conclusion but like we've already said captain america turns himself in the superhuman registration act goes into effect tony stark is running the world reed's team wins sue's team loses now onto the epilogue issue. Fantastic Four, number 543, which also serves as the 45th anniversary issue. Um, Yeah, Lisa, this one, you read it first, and I remember you reading it, and you were like, what? And I was like, what? And you were like, read this. And uh, yeah, we learn a little bit more about the origin of Reed and Sue's relationship. And I guess I was aware of this age gap between the two before reading it, but reading it this time with the conversations that we've already had about them as a couple, um, like I had, I had a real like struggle moment with like trying to figure out, what does this age gap mean for them as a romantic duo?
0: For me, it has less to do with the age gap and more to do with their age gap at the time of their meeting.
1: Yes, and and right, because I don't have have an issue uh, necessarily with age gaps because we have a five-year age gap. Mm -hmm. That's not that much different than Reed and Sue's age gap. They have a seven-year age gap. That's not unheard of.
0: But Sue was... 13 when they met. Yeah. And it's not like they started dating at 13, but she starts this flashback moment by saying, I loved you ever since I first met you. Yeah. When I was 13 years old. And that
1: panel, the flashback panel by Mike McCone, I mean, it's so clear that he is very much an adult man, mm-hmm. and she is a child, a very young girl.
0: And that's not saying that when I was 13, I didn't, like, see adult men and go, sure. like, he's handsome, or whatever, but the idea of um, her carrying this love for him into adulthood, and, and she, does, she does say that it clouded her judgment to right. a certain degree. And She's- then,
1: you know, you have to think about Reed and... You know, we know a lot more about this kind of manipulation and grooming uh, in in our culture. And so, like, reading, like, it just—
0: It just doesn't read well. It, it
1: feels, it feels it really icky. It felt a little
0: bit icky. Yeah. And, like, it's like, she's like, I loved you ever since I was 13 years old. And he's like, well, I didn't love you until later. Yeah. Until you were a legal adult yeah. legal person. And,
1: and So, like, then I start researching a little bit about their meeting and you go back to the John Byrne comics and the way that John Byrne illustrates Sue during these periods is even more infantile mm-hmm. and gross and just downright wrong. And so like like it's 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 a hard, it's a hard chunk of information for me to get beyond and get back to just thinking of them as um, peers or equals. Like like I, this relationship, what appeals to me is them as equals and them meeting when she is a young girl and him a college kid, that disrupts their equality.
0: Since their conception back in the 60s, we've seen all of these retcons yeah. to try to give her more autonomy and for the most part like to me they've failed um in our last episode we talked about the retcon where she was an aspiring actress but then again she gives up those hopes and dreams to become part of the fantastic four so that doesn't really give her any autonomy either and now with this age gap being like it had existed before, but I had never really thought about it from this perspective. Where I'm like, why don't we just change this? Yeah. Like that, having them meet as two adults would go a long way in her having a little bit more control over the relationship and, or in the relationship. And
1: Marvel does retcon it to yes. be so.
0: Thank you. So, this revelation of the summer at Aunt Jules comes in the middle of what I think is a pretty important scene because Reed and Sue are all dolled up and they're sitting in the fantastic car and they're trying to negotiate how their relationship Mm -hmm. is going to go forward. And Reed is trying to be like a little romantic. He wants to just kind of be like it was before and Sue is just not ready for that. And he's like, what, like, See, you still love me. You're saying these things that say that you still love me. And she goes like, it's not a love issue. It's a trust issue. Mm I
1: mean, yeah, this this scene, this issue, I don't think it necessarily um, does everything that I want it to do as far as confronting what went down in Civil War. But at the very least, it's not a clean slate. You know, Dwayne McDuffie going forward, if the couple is going to stay together, has a lot of work to do with them in his stories. And ultimately, I want to keep Reed and Sue together as a couple. I am a fan of them as a couple. And it's helpful to have the 40th wedding anniversary in my memory because I know that they go through many issues and survive them all. And there's strength in that knowledge. Uh, But also, like again, the Civil War event is just so traumatic.
0: It was traumatic for the world. It was traumatic for superheroes and humans. It was traumatic for their marriage. But it was also traumatic for Sue's relationship with herself. And she says something at the end of this conversation that is pretty revealing to me because she says, like, you know, like... I love I loved you so much that I couldn't see clearly through my love. I worshiped you. I thought you could do no wrong. Now I know better. I still love you, Reed, but it won't ever be the same. So she had this perspe- this perspective on him. and now how is she going to trust herself? after this to just freely love.
1: Hmm. But you also think about the many traumas that have occurred on this planet. And while not everyone survives through them, people do survive through traumas and and reconnect and what have you. And so it's not it's not unthinkable to imagine them healing from this point forward.
0: And I do, with my whole heart and soul, believe in redemption. Yeah. And as long as a, a person breathes, they can change. Yeah.
1: And I had never read these issues before uh, talking about them here for this podcast. I had read Civil War, but I was not reading Fantastic Four at the time. And when we come to the end of this issue and the Fantastic Four return as something new with a couple new additions, because Reed and Sue need to go find themselves and uh, continue their healing journey, and they they invite- T'Challa and Aurora onto the team, Black Panther and Storm. Man, I wanna keep reading.
0: Yeah, yeah. We haven't even talked about Johnny and Ben who, while Reed and Sue are out trying to fix their marriage, They're watching Franklin and Val and there happens to be like a fantastic four late line special on television.
1: It's fun. It's cute. It's a, you know, it's a way for the comic book to look back on its history and the many, many, many people who have been on this team before.
0: But like this special has this strong narrative about what a hero Reed Richards is and, um, what a brilliant and good person he is. Yeah,
1: yeah. I I mean, I think that is some diabolical writing by Dwayne McDuffie because it feels very much like the kind of propaganda that would be put out there after Civil War where the Superhuman Registration Act is now in full effect. And we have to show that the people who come along, get along, are really rad and good people.
0: And Sue, the obliger, and- public person is also kind of going along and getting along with this, the Fantastic Four are going to be fine narrative. The reason they're all dolled up actually is because they're going to a ceremony to receive another key to a city. So she's still publicly being part of the Fantastic Four. She's playing
1: first lady.
0: And there is part of the special... That is a segment where she was on Oprah, and Oprah is uh, trying to praise her for her role on the Fantastic Four and her role being with Reed Richards. And Oprah goes to say, like, you are Reed Richards' compass, moral compass. Yeah. And – Sue goes like, yeah, like what Oprah actually says is like, some people would say that you you are Reed Richard's moral compass. And the way Sue replies is some people are too kind. (laughs) But I can't like that must have been like a dagger barb to Sue's heart because she has realized that she actually has no control over Reed and his actions because he has this upholder autonomy and she doesn't have the kind of influence over him that an obliger would think is her number one principle. Everybody should be acting as a team and a unit.
1: Yeah, I didn't really pick up on that on first read until you pointed that out. And that is a, that is another damning moment in a comic book full of damning moments.
0: The one shining moment of that special for me is when the, I guess they're like, we got to be fair and balanced. <laughs> um, and they have Dr. Doom on yeah. to talk about Reed Richards. And Dr. Doom, of course, being the rebel and you know his nemesis, goes on to say, like, Reed Richards is a terrible and dangerous guy. And there's going to come a time when you come to me begging to save you from Reed Richard. As
1: a punctuation mark on this entire event, you're like, uh yeah, Doom Doom Doom's got this.
0: He's got a point.
1: And that pretty much does it for Fantastic Four: Civil War. Uh, the epilogue issue as a 45th anniversary. It's extra sized. There is an additional two stories: one Human Torch tale, a uh, Human Torch and Peter Parker Spider-Man tale, written and drawn by Paul Pope. That's pretty cool. And then there's this really bizarre, uh, but a fascinating time capsule: this short story written by Stan Lee and illustrated by Nick Dragotta of uh, East of West. Fame, but uh, Dragota's pencils are inked heavily by Mike Allred, and Laura Allred supplies the colors. And it's this it's a fun, cute little um, meta uh, mole man tale in which Stanley does appear and does his self deprecating humor. It and
0: feels like a parody.
1: It, I mean, it is a parody. It's cute. It's weird. It's a little uncomfortable. Uh, it's a strange way to end the Civil War <laughs> storyline, uh, but uh, I had a good time with it.
0: So, Brad. Mm. I feel like we've been through a lot. Yeah, I mean, yes, we have. <laughs> the the Civil War from the Fantastic Four point of view, from Reed and Sue's point of view, is a lot. I'm
1: so glad it's not our last episode on Sue and Reed, though.
0: <laughs> is there anything from this conversation, either from Civil War or from the Four Tendencies, that you're going to take with you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I've, I've found this storyline incredibly relevant and relatable uh, coming out of these last four years uh, in in having conversations with you and family about the politics of this planet and um, I, you know like you know you you have to ask those questions like you know what what is important to you and are your values worth, um, shattering familial connections, and everyone's got to come to those decisions on their own. And I can't say like this helped me come to those decisions, but I certainly just, like I said, just connected very hard to the problem at the heart of it, uh, and 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 feeling a lot like Ben, and and wishing mom and dad wouldn't fight so much. Uh, but for me, like in terms of relationships, and in terms of Reed and Sue, and. When issues like that uh, were, if they're ever to flare up between us, I think the key here, the greatest sin of this storyline uh, for for this couple, is Reed withholding information and keeping secrets, and clearly not trusting Sue with all the information and not not having the faith that that Sue will help him through these very dark thoughts and ideas that he is calculating.
0: I think that she was in a situation where she just believed that Reed was thinking the same way that she was thinking. Always dangerous. We're a team and we are fully transparent with each other. Not that he gave her a ton of clues to the contrary, Mm -hmm. but you have to remember like, Just because you are in the same situation, doing the same action, you're not doing it for the same reason. And we've
1: had that happen in our relationship, you know, where I will act in a certain way because I assume Lisa would see this situation in the same way that I would, and therefore she would do what I want to do in this situation. And then you go like, oh, no, uh, Lisa doesn't think like I do. Lisa is her own person.
0: (laughs) I think that it's also really insightful, going like that they are not identical tendencies, but they are adjacent tendencies. And when they are in conflict, they tend to retreat to the site of their tendency that they are, they don't share. So mm. we watched Reed retreat into the questioner side of his brain where he goes like, I'm going to go into the numbers and I'm going to justify what I'm doing with the information that I've gathered. And Sue retreats into her rebel side going like, well, I'm, I'm leaving this marriage. I'm going to fight for what I believe was right and I don't, and I don't care um, what you're going to do about it. And I go like, well, what do you and I do when we're in conflict? Because I'm an obliger like Sue. Mm,
1: and I'm a rebel. And you're a rebel. Like Dr. Doom.
0: But because when we go into conflict, I don't rebel, I uphold. And I go, well, you said that this mm. was going to happen yeah. this way and these are the rules that I follow. I think also my fascination with things like the Enneagram and the Four Tendencies and the Myers-Briggs are all an extension of my upholderness. I am looking for the rules beyond the rules. What is the moral of the story and how am I supposed to act the rest of my life? And you retreat into your questioner tendency, the other side of your rebel tendency, which is like, well, why does it have to be that way? And what if, Uh what if it plays out this way and that way? And maybe when we find ourselves in conflict, we should return to what we have in common. I should try to be a little bit more rebellious and you should try to be a little bit more of a an obliger. I, I mean,
1: I so I think the important thing is, there is what's great is we now have the language thanks to the four tendencies to uh, consider when we have a flare up, right? And so I can think about you as an obliger. I can think of myself as a rebel, and I have been. Uh, you know, like there's been several instances this week, actually one today um, involving, uh, you know, some treats that I had and w- which I think resulted out of my rebel tendencies where mm. I was like, oh, I could go ahead and have that because, you know, whatever. Uh-huh. I know. And, w- you know, when I uh, when I did that today, I, you know, and I was like, oh, why did I do that? I mean, like, you know, this is hard to talk about because it's like, do I want to talk about the listeners with the fact that I ate a burger today (laughs) and I've told myself that I'm cutting out burgers? Uh, I guess I am talking to you about that and I told myself I wasn't going to eat a burger but then I went with my dad and then my dad was like, you don't have to have a burger, you can have a vegan option and then my response was, no, 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 I'll have a burger and... You know, we had a conversation about that because I immediately have the burger and I was like feeling a little food shame, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And you're like, you know why you did that is because you're a rebel and you rebelled against your dad saying, go ahead and have that vegan patty. And I was like, I mean, that is a relationship that I have with my father as well, where my dad says one thing and then I'm going to do the other.
0: Well, you can go back to your rebel principles like rebels don't like to be predictable they they have this thing in them that goes like well you don't know me only i fully know myself yeah um so you have to go back to like well what is my self identity like do i am i a person who eats burgers or am i a person who not eats well, doesn't well, eat burgers well to
1: me uh understanding my habitual response as a result of my tendency is helpful and i have to decide if that is who i want to be or recognize that maybe I don't want to always rebel and choose a different option.
0: Or maybe when you have a rebel flare up, you forgive yourself because uh, that's, that's kind of just who you are. Yeah. I uh, think yeah. another revelation of this episode is that, like, if you go back to the principles of each of the four tendencies. Upholders value self-command and performance. Questioners value justification and purpose. Obligers value teamwork. Rebels value freedom and self-identity. None of those are bad right. principles. Yeah. They're all things I can get behind.
1: Right, and and the tendencies aren't inherently bad in any way.
0: Or inherently good. Right,
1: right, they just are.
0: They just are. So I think that when you find yourself in conflict with some – like when we when we find – ourselves in conflict with each other, like I go like, well, why don't I lean into that rebel principle? Like, Mm. can I make this an issue about freedom and self-identity? And you can lean into my obliger principle of, can I make this about teamwork and togetherness?
1: Mm. Yeah, I I mean, I like that. And I feel like this is the first self-help guide that we've had in a while where I want to do a little more extracurricular reading Mm. into the tendencies themselves. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about some of the more problematic aspects of the four tendencies as well. Um, But just the language that it gives me, again, uh, I think is very helpful.
0: And we haven't even really gotten into some of the tools. Like, because there's because we've been talking about people as couples Mm -hmm. for the most part. But like there's a lot of tools as an individual that she offers where you go like, I have a goal, but my rebel tendency is, uh, I keep on getting in my own way, so what is a way that I, myself, as a rebel, can motivate myself to meet whatever my goal is? So there's a lot of great stuff in that book. I'm not gonna say that Gretchen Rubin is perfect. No. Because she does have one thing in the four tendencies that I, myself, find a little bit triggering. And that is she does use a ton of diet talk. Yeah. So, like, everything goes to, well, you want to motivate yourself to cut carbs or exercise more and blah, blah, blah. So, I, like, I feel like I do ha- – ha- as, as an eating disorder survivor and a person who myself am trying to get off of, like, trying to cleanse diet talk yeah. from yeah. my vocabulary –
1: and and uh, I think for those that don't know who are listening, they should know that when I was talking about Burger, it was not dietary reasons. It was my own ethical reasons.
0: Ethical reasons where we're trying uh, to harm animals less. Yes. Um. Yeah. So so she does use a lot of diet talk. So I have to put that out there. Can I just mention one yeah. more This is away? our show.
1: This is our 100th episode, Lisa. <laughs> oh, yeah, It's going right. to be long. And we still have an interview or at least a portion of an interview after the
0: credits. Oh, uh, yeah. So bonus um my last takeaway is when I like it goes back to the idea of having an opposite tendency so everybody has a tendency that is like their nemesis or whatever sure so to me when I find someone out in the world being an (laughs) a-hole yeah and I go like I just don't get this person odds are that person is a questioner, and I'm not relating to them because they are not going along to get along. Not
1: all questioners are a holes.
0: But uh, to me, they they enrage me in a unique way. Mm, and even in my
1: questioners enrage you in a unique way. And
0: even in my studio, I I teach private music lessons. I have certain students where I'm like, I just feel like I can't get through to them. And I had this revelation of. Oh, it's because I don't relate to them as questioners. <laughs> so now I find like I have a lot more compassion for people who just insist on rubbing me the right way because I'm not seeing them as an oh, ally. I love that. I'm seeing them as. A questioner who's going like, well, why does it have to be that way? And why can't I just do it my way? And blah blah blah. This
1: is great. I love hearing that, Lisa.
0: Yeah. Do you find upholders to be a holes like people uh, who are like, well, that's the rule. Uh,
1: I mean, yes, I yes, yes. I mean that is one of my pet peeves. Those those types of individuals for those reasons. Yes. Yes. Yeah.
0: Huh? Interesting. So so maybe when you meet. And it can be revealing to your own tendency, like where you go, like, "Ooh, I'm tending to find like people who are rebellious a-holes. Oh, maybe it is because I myself am a and, and, and
1: that is something that uh, I am trying to do. I'm trying to uh, approach arguments or uh, nemesis uh, from a place of empathy and compassion, and trying to see the situation from their side. What is their narrative that they're uh, telling themselves? And I think approaching it from a tendency standpoint, yeah, I think I could see how that could be super helpful.
0: A lot of the book, Gretchen Rubin says like, you need to take advantage of your tendency. Why don't you lean into your tendency? And the more I think about it, I go like, I would like to transcend my tendency. I would like to be able to access All of these different options when it comes to problem solving, when it comes to decision making, when it comes to looking at others. I would love to be able to embrace the principles of all of the tendencies when it's appropriate.
1: Heck yeah. All right. So that's the end of Fantastic Four Civil War talk. We got to discuss next week.
0: Next week, our 101st episode, Or our 68th episode? Yeah, that one right there. Uh, We only
1: have one Sue and Reed episode left, and then we're on to the next couple, uh, Loki and Loki, as we've announced already. Uh, And since we got a little hung up regarding their age gap in this episode, we thought it would be fun to read a comic series from the more recent era of Fantastic Four comics. Not too recent, but within the last uh, five years or so, we're going to check out the first Six issues of Matt Fraction and Mark Bagley's Fantastic Four. It's often seen as a lesser work, forever in the shadow of Jonathan Hickman's very heady FF run, a great run of comics. I thought for a long time that we'd be talking about it here in this podcast, but sadly, no, we're going with Fraction and Bagley. I think there's a lot of good stuff there, especially between Sue and Reed, and it retcons the age gap that we had so much trouble with this week. There are only 16 issues, Lisa. I'm going to try to read all 16 issues. I'm not going to require that of you. We're just going to talk about the six issues to kick the thing off.
0: I am a very busy and important lady. I know.
1: I know. Uh, but that's, that's my goal. Uh, So there you go. Um, It's time to get into our sign off portion of the show, but remember you're going to want to stay after the credits with this epic 100th episode. We've got one question with Howard Wong and Josh Stafford talking about their comic damned cursed children. And please be sure to check out the show notes to see where you can hear the rest of this chat, as well as where you can purchase the comic. This book I love it so much. It's a wild crazy ride. Uh, the trade paperback is coming out in July but the f- entire run all five issues are out from source point press. Lisa and I big thumbs up.
0: We you are going to want to own this book in all of its shapes.
1: yeah all its shapes.
0: Okay, Brad, it's time to drive this fantastic car right into a cliff. Oh, no. Where can our listeners send their (laughs) words of affirmation to you? Uh,
1: Why can't they fly off into the sunset, Lisa? You can find us on all social medias at Mouthdork. I am referring to myself in the third person now, (laughs) us. Uh, If you have some words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at a cool hand fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, send them over to Karen Charm, at Karen underscore X-Men fan. And oh gosh, please give some love to Josh Cornelin. You can find them over at Josh Cornelin on Twitter. That's C-O-R-N-I-L-L-O-N. And Lisa, where can our lovely listeners send their words of affirmation to you?
0: I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube. Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, <laughs> you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes.
1: If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, Podcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcasts.
0: You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts and If you'd like to do an active service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod.
1: So until next time, folks, keep your love tank full.
0: And your psychic rapport open. Ah,
1: uh, not so fast. We have many more minutes left to this episode. Where
0: do you think you're going, guys?
1: Howard Wong and Josh Stafford, the writers of Damned Cursed Children, are answering one question that we asked them during a much longer conversation. A longer conversation that you can hear right now in our Patreon feed or read a portion of transcript-wise on ComicBookCouplesCounseling.com. This conversation was a lot of fun. I love this comic book. I wanna promote it in all the ways and in all the manners that we can. Click that link. Click that link.
0: I love the moral ramifications of the zombies being infected children. Is there a deeper cultural subtext there that we can read into it?
2: I think for myself, it's just kids are scary. And that's nothing <laughs> new. Uh, just recently, I happened I happen to hear an interview with Neil Gaiman. And he said, never be afraid of kind of expanding an idea on an idea or ripping off an idea or rebooting an idea because there, there's no new ideas. Everything is kind of there already. So there's been a number of really good scary kid horror movies and comics and stuff like that. So when we come at it, we're just putting a different twist on it, a different angle on it. But I think that's the big thing is it's the it's it's something as innocent and you know, you're kind and nice or beloved as a kid or your kid, all of a sudden, drop of a hat, for no reason, just becoming monsters and i think howard came at it from a parent point of view and seeing the fear in that and i just came at it from a horror geek point of view and seeing the fear in that a uh, couple of things first uh they're not zombies because they're not actually the living dead because they didn't die and come back right. <laughs> so they're not zombies uh that's, so i can share that it's not very spoiling because we have the, those preview pages from issue one to, to show that for me there there are definitely are uh, there are things that i put in there purposely personally for messages and stuff like that. But definitely like any good story should echo out to people and connect with whatever they have, and have you know in their thoughts personally? So there are if you want them, um, and if you don't want it, and you just want to have a fun, crazy ass ride, you have that too. So you can go deeper or not, and it works both ways. And that was something that we tr- I tried to make sure we had it was a good balance of both. Because if you go if you lean too much one way versus the other, you sort of lose that fun aspect of these kind of stories. As the core is can be really silly and stupid, and then you basically you're not immersed and you fall out of it. But the ones that connect you really well, it stays with you forever. Like You can literally recall scenes and movies and stuff like that. And you tell friends about it years and years later because of that aspect. So hopefully we did our job and did that, too.
1: <laughs> there you are, friends. You made it to the end of episode 100 of Comic Book Couples Counseling. Lisa has gone to bed And it is only I left in the love nest editing this episode, putting the final touches on it. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did putting it together. Uh, This is a true labor of love. I adore our podcast and I adore you for listening. Thank you so much. And uh, support Howard and Josh. Go get their comic Damned Cursed Children again. The link is in the show notes. Click on it. Browse around that site and order the book. Uh, If you're a horror fan at all, I think you will enjoy it. And if you like zombie stuff, even though Howard says it's not a zombie comic, it's a zombie comic. You will enjoy it. And uh, yeah, on to the next episode, episode 101 or 68 or whatever. Take care, everyone. Now let's dissect this baby.
0: Dissect this baby.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Cut Franklin open. No!